Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. With me today is someone that listeners know pretty well, uh, Bob Greenley. Bob is the Chief Operating Officer of Tusk Holdings. He runs Pericles, Tusk Philanthropies, all kinds of different things, um, and wanted to have him on talk about a couple different topics, starting with Pericles. So, Bob, thanks for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. Yeah. So um, we made an announcement last week about the launch of Pericles. What is Pericles? So Pericles is ultimately uh, nothing different than what we have been doing. It is a business where we work with early stage startups to help them solve their problems, help them grow, help them strategize about how to work with government, and we do an exchange for equity. Right. So um, why would a startup want to do this and... How do we feel confident enough to take equity in a startup that, you know, statistically speaking, will probably fail? So let me separate that out into two. Number one, why would a startup want to do this? Every startup should want to do this because what we say with Pericles is, you know, just because you haven't taken an interest in government doesn't mean the government will not take an interest in you. And every startup that is going to grow and believes it is going to grow, which should be every startup, um, should know that if they grow fast enough um, and if they get enough traction, government will be interested in them. Even if the product that they're designing has no apparent flaws, even if it's not heavily regulated right now, you will need a strategy to work with governments. And the earlier you think about it, the better off you will be as a company and the faster and more smooth your growth will be. Why do we want to do it? So I can tell you for myself personally why I'm excited about it and why we spun out Pericles as an independent unit from the Tusk Strategies business that we've always had. Um, I think that what I've learned from working with companies like this for about a decade now is that the earliest stage companies need a different set of services. They face different types of challenges than bigger companies who are working in a well-regulated space and are well-known by lawmakers. And... It's an interesting challenge to work with them. I also think, and I think that this is probably a belief you share, that the small and growing startups are really what's driving innovation in the country. So for us to be able to work with them, to work with the companies that is growing, helps us to really help the uh, the country innovate, and it helps us potentially to make a lot of money doing it. Because working with companies that are growing fast and taking their equity can be extremely lucrative, although it is a big risk. Yeah, and I would say the, the third reason why I like it is it provides a pipeline for Touch Ventures. So, you know, companies that are at this point too early for uh, Touch Ventures to invest in, but we get to know them, we kind of do a lot of diligence, you know, basically on site, and then that gives us the ability to decide whether or not we'd want to lead a Series A or something like that. Um, what are examples of, of projects, companies, issues Pericles is working on? Sure. So I'll give you three to start out. Um, one is Kinspire. Uh, Kinspire is a company that provides virtual services uh, to families with children with autism. Um, it provides them in a way that empowers parents to be actively engaged in their care. Um, and this helps out in kind of two major ways. First of all, the science has shown that kids who learn from their parents and with engaged parents and from an OT perspective, and that's what Kinspire does it provides occupational therapists uh, have faster development times. So by itself, the science suggests this is the right thing to be doing. Um, The other benefit is it's cheaper and more available to people in rural areas where it's really hard to find occupational therapists to do things. So it levels out and adds equity to what people are doing. Um, Obviously, as a new type of model, this is something that's really hard 
for uh, insurance companies, both commercial carriers and Medicaid companies to think about. And kids with autism are a relatively small segment of the population. So it's it requires some real work, but we're extremely psyched to be working with them. Um, second one, it's electric. I know that you've had Nathan on uh, Firewall before. It's electric as EV chargers for uh, neighborhood um, and particularly for middle-income neighborhoods. So it's curb-based EV charging. Um, super exciting, super timely. There was, I think, an article in Axios yesterday or today around the, the lack of equity um, in terms of uh, EV charging availability. That's completely accurate. That's what It's Electric has been working to solve. And with them out there and with our help, they're working with Boston, with, Boston, with Washington, with New York, with Detroit, with Chicago, to find ways to solve this equity problem before it becomes a problem. Um, third one, I guess, uh, Block Party, uh, who sure. was just Another. recently yeah. on. Um, and uh, you know they are doing something that I think has really gotten me excited and energized about the space. Um, they are showing the way that third-party developers can solve and can innovate in ways that the big platforms can. Um, and that's exactly what we're talking about with Pericles the ability for new upstarts to come in and innovate where the larger companies have just shown the inability or unwillingness to do so. From a business model standpoint, um, obviously, you know, when you're working with startups this young in this early stage, you're throwing a lot of darts at the dartboard. Um, What do you think our approach needs to be for this to make sense economically, keeping in mind that every year, you know, I'm paying for all of Pericles' costs on the hope that over time, the returns will significantly outweigh that. So it's it is it's a tough model. Um, it's a tough model when you're not taking cash, but we're committed to not taking cash because particularly now we know early stage startups are really trying to shepherd their available cash wisely, given the fact that the funding climate has been a little bit uncertain. Um, I think what you need to do from our side as running a business is you need to make a large enough number of bets that you're going to have some real winners, um, but not too large a number of bets so that you're spreading yourself too thin, so that you're taking on companies that, you know, maybe weren't the right companies or weren't the right fits. um, And so that you're not, um, you know, you're not moving too broadly across the the landscape into areas you're unfamiliar with. Bob, let me jump in there because I have a question um, related to just what you're talking about. How often... I mean, I realize it's super early going, but you know, if a if a client comes to Tusk Strategies, mm-hmm. uh, you like them, they're not you know villains or people are going to do bad things in the world, mm-hmm. but you don't really know if their business model is going to work. You, you yeah. might take them as a client anyway because they're going to pay, and you're just yeah. going to be like, cool, you know. If, if, um, if the check clears and there's not an ethical problem, it's fine. <laughs> right. In this thing, there must be there must be at least a lot of potential for people coming to you with ideas you really like. Oh, that's a cool idea, but like, mm. yeah, we have we have to provide. Uh, much more of an analytical framework before we decide to work with someone. So it's kind of a, a two-sided vetting process, which is, do they want our help, and are they willing to part with equity in order to get that help? And then do we want their equity, right? And it, it comes at a few points. It comes at the beginning where we have to say, do we think this is a worthwhile bet? And keep in mind, you're making that bet with very little data because these companies are so early. So you're really deciding, do I believe in this founder? Um, do I believe in this idea? And do I think that with our help, um, they can succeed. But then also you have to along the way keep an eye on it because what if you say four months in, you know what, I was wrong about this founder. This person is really not nearly as impressive as I thought. I don't think this company's going to make it. Um, then, you know, you have to sort of figure out how to transition out of it, you know, as best you can. And and what's the calculus? How is it different 
between an investment from Tusk Ventures and a, and a, and a working arrangement through Pericles? Yeah, so when Tusk Ventures invests, the, the main value proposition and what differentiates us from every single venture capital fund in the world is we handle our portfolio companies' regulatory and communications issues and opportunities for them for free. That is part of what we do. The reason why we almost never lose a deal is I say to a founder, look, um, you have this problem. This is going to come your way. You're going to have to deal with it. You have two choices. You can pay my consulting firm a million bucks and they can solve it for you, or I can give you a couple million bucks and I'll do it for free. Um, pretty good, pretty easy choice. So as a result, Tusk Venture sort of rarely loses a deal. Um, but we have specific investment criteria in terms of we don't really invest in things that are pre-revenue, pre-product. Okay, so now that you've got your feet on the ground in this, in this model, in the equities for services model, what do you tell other people who are considering something like this? Yeah, I, I get this a lot. And I think in, in part, um, my early experience in this kind of screwed everyone up in that, you know, my first two were Uber and Clear. Uh, they both did well, Uber especially well. And for years and years and years, I've gotten emails from people and political consultants and operators saying, oh, I'm, I'm just like you. I'm taking equity in this startup. And, you know, I have to try to politely tell them, look, I, I got lucky and I found the needle on the haystack on my first try. And it wasn't because I was so talented or anything else. I just got really lucky. Um, and ultimately, you know, it, if you're just going to do one or two, it's probably not going to yield the results you want because you, you need a portfolio so to, to balance the losers with the winners. Right. Um which means, one, you have to probably be able to do, you know, we try with Pericles, the goal is to have 10 or so uh, clients at any given time, um, some roll on, some roll off, and that gives us enough shots that, you know, when a bunch of them go to zero, which they will, as long as we get a couple of winners and one or two over time are, are grand slams, um, that's really where we make the money on this thing. That plus the, the tax treatment is different because it's capital gains as opposed to regular income as long as we're in it for three years, which in this case we, we always are. But look, I think fundamentally there's a lot of risk involved, right? You know, one, you have to have a high risk tolerance. I, I do. Um, that's not inherently better or worse. It's just who you are. Um, two is we have, you know, a significant cash producing business and touch strategies that that's shoots off enough profits that I can cover all the Pericles costs, you know, all the people who work there, their salaries, their benefits, all the other stuff um, with cash coming in, you know, from profits that otherwise I guess would just go into my, my bank account. So, you know, I'm, I'm taking this bet, but I, I have the ability to finance it uh, through doing this. So, you know, I think if you have that kind of business where, where you have a high risk tolerance and you have enough cash to sort of devote uh, a practice to this, it's worthwhile. But keep in mind, you know, what started off as sort of a one-off thing is now its own independent business with its own team. You know, everyone on the team did work at Touch Strategies at, at some point. Um, they have that skill set. Um, and, you know, all the things that come with running a company. So it is a model that is high risk, high reward. Um, it makes sense for me and for the way that I do business and the way that I see the world. I would say that if you are considering creating a company based on an equity for services model, um, you should really do a lot of soul-searching diligence first. What, what do you mean soul-searching? Uh, you know, everyone, society has deemed the notion of that having a high risk tolerance is cool, right? You know, the, the people who are out there taking risks, making shit happen, putting it all on the line, you know, all of that is like they're seen as therefore good, right? And therefore the message that, that the opposite is, well, if you're, if you're risk intolerant, if you're risk averse, um, that's bad. I see this with my students all the time. And the reality is, 
neither one is, is bad or good. I've taken risks that have really paid off. I've taken risks that have really failed. Um, my personality is such that I am comfortable doing so, which doesn't mean that I'm not unhappy when I fail, um, but I can kind of get over it and keep going. You just have to know yourself, right? And my fear is that a lot of times because it is seen as sort of cool and good to be risk-friendly, people convince themselves that they have that kind of tolerance. They don't, and then it's a fucking disaster for them because their stomach is turning 24-7, and it just makes the entire experience unpleasant. And so I think the soul-searching is, who am I? And at the end of the day, will this make me more happy or less happy? And if the amount of stress it puts on you exceeds the benefits, the, 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 the joy or whatever else that the benefits will bring you, you shouldn't do it. So, um, all right, Bob, since you're here, I just want to hit a couple other topics as sure. well. Uh, and you can jump in as well. So, so Microsoft, as we saw now, is talking about investing as much as $10 billion into chatbot GPT. Clearly, we're seeing the first really big advances on AI. There has been a lot of attention paid to students you know, writing fraudulent term papers and college essays and everything else. Um, what's interesting here, and you and I were talking about this before we started recording, is Microsoft and Google are the two biggest technology providers, not surprisingly, two schools across the U.S. Um, Microsoft is in some ways either taking a, a big risk that, you know, having this extra technology will help them sell to schools, or perhaps if the schools come to hate this, you know, maybe it becomes a black mark against them. Um, where, how do you think it's going to play out? And given that Microsoft, obviously, this occurred to them, what do you think their logic is? So I think a couple things. I, I think that their logic has to be the potential upside to overtaking Google, who's their other competitor working with schools, um, through Bing, has got to outweigh all of what they get in their ed tech franchise. Because I do think, I think it's very much that black mark that you talked about is very real if teachers start to think about, and if schools start to think about Microsoft as enabling cheating at, at scale, then the idea that they're using Chromebooks in every classroom starts to become really problematic for everybody. Or I guess the Microsoft equivalent of Chromebook, whoever those are. But, you know, this is a, it's a real problem. That said, you know, I've played around, as I think you know, with ChatGPT a fair amount. I feel like teachers should be able to isolate fairly quickly what the ChatGPT literary style is and should be able to tell when cheating is going on. I mean, cheating, I will say, having kids who are of the you know middle school, elementary school age, the pandemic has caused cheating to go out of control as it is. All of the like spelling tests and the like that I see my kids having, all of the answer keys to these vocab and spelling things are all available online. There are YouTube channels exclusively devoted to how you cheat on things. I mean, cheating, cheating is already like radically out of control for these guys. So I don't know that this is something that ChatGPT should be solely responsible right. so, for. Right. So you're Microsoft, and the argument you're making is like, look, we didn't create ChatGPT. It exists in the world. Kids are going to gravitate towards it anyway. We can, as part of our package, give you software that will help automatically detect usage so that we actually protect you from it. We're not further exposing your risk to it. Yeah, I mean, it could it could turn into if you have we have the chat GPT backdoor to show you whether something has been doctored or not, that this will be a real killer app for them in their ed tech package. Could yeah. be really great. Yeah, and it was you know in, in the millions of words seem to have been spilled now on sort of how this affects schools. You know, one thing that I did see were um, both high school and college professors talking about look. You know, previously, a lot of the work was go find this information and recite it for me in a paper. 
now that the information is so easy to find and that the potential to sort of just type a few words in the chatbot GPT and get all the information exists, um, what they're saying is, hey, we need to then ask students to be more analytical, more rigorous. And actually, you know, in some ways, it, it might do a better job, you know, teaching critical thinking than what we do right now. Yeah, I mean, look, again, I'm not entirely sure that ChatGPT really goes at college level deep enough into some of these topics to, you know, to qualify as something that would pass. But certainly at the high school level, it will increase the analytical and like the second order thinking that kids have to do. And that's like what people are better at anyway. So this is in, in that what you, respect. What, what do you mean people are better at that? People are versus machines. People are better at adding. Oh, they're better than machines. I see yeah, that. yeah. Okay. They're better than machines at adding second order thinking, kind of reflecting on things, riffing off of ideas, you know, taking things in different directions and then different tangents for their own purposes. It's that creativity that is potentially the more interesting thing about what makes us people and will be our differentiator. So uh, if kids get better at that earlier, that's probably good. Okay, let's go. This, so this morality of growth story um, uh, focuses on this one pretty interesting element of, of uh, they, they use a term called the catalysts. And I guess it's this, it's basically the New York Times sort of reader, in, in essence, yeah. like a, a kind of upper middle class, well-educated person who um, thinks that they, they just have these ideas about what the culture needs to be that are kind of at odds with the business world as we know it, but they seek to have this kind of influence and... and yeah, I mean, look, the, I thought the article resonated really strongly with me, and we'll, we'll put it up, uh, I'll link to it on, on the site if, if any of the listeners are interested in reading it. But what, what, it, what it said to me was effectively most of our culture in the Western world is being run by people who are neither so extraordinary and outstanding that they're actually creating new things that benefit people, nor are they people in need who where their issues and their needs should be driving the agenda so we can help as many people as possible. It's sort of like if, you know, instead of the 1%, it's the 9th percent, the 18th percent, the 27th percent. And in some ways, they're the worst of all worlds. They're kind of the, lo <laughs> they're the losers of the winners, right? Because on one hand, you know, they lead by and large, very cushy, comfortable lives. They don't really have to worry about being homeless or not having enough food to eat or basic safety or things like that. But at the same time, because we live in a world where there's so much attention paid to the very, very top, this is a group of people who tend to be very resentful of the fact that they're in the ninth percent, not the not the one percent, especially because it might mean that they just didn't have the talent or whatever it took to get to the one percent. And so therefore this becomes this entire political movement. That's what the DSA is, that's what the New York Times is, that's what MSNBC is, which is we are gonna make you feel better about yourself, you in the seventeenth percent, by bashing the people in the one percent. However, the policies that are designed for the 17% are kind of the worst of all worlds because you could have policies that sort of encourage high growth, high innovation. And I think as we've established in this podcast a bunch of times before, that overall mindset has led to greater gains among uh, reducing poverty globally than anything in history, right? You know, whether it's uh, infant mortality or life expectancy or literacy or extreme poverty, every metric is up exponentially because of the macro impact of democracy and capitalism, um, these are attempts to kind of limit that. So they're neither empowering and enabling the forces that lead to people in the third world, in developing countries, um, getting the help that they need and, and sort of building better lives, not just help in terms of aid, but actually tools to build better lives. Um, but at the same time, they're also not really, you know, looking out for um, the, the people, even in our own country, sort of in the 50th percent or 70th percent, like I think, I think defunding the police is a really good example. 
The people who want to fund the police are typically young, white, affluent people, right? It is, you know, rarely uh, leaders in communities of color because you know what? Those tend to be the communities that suffer from the highest crime. And what do they want? Cops to be able to stop that crime. Now, do they want their constitutional rights to be respected? Absolutely. But, but it, you know, respecting people's rights and fighting crime are not mutually exclusive. Um, and I think we just see time after time that you've got this group that they love saying no to things. They love being self-righteous. They love condemning everyone they possibly can morally. But the reality is the net result of their views and policies does the least amount of good possible from any view on the spectrum. Bob, what do you think? I completely disagree with you. <laughs> okay. I, couldn't, I couldn't disagree with you more about the article and a lot of what you said. So let me, let me start with the article. Yep. Here's the problem with the article, which is it was like it was a bullshit shell game, right? It's conflating two issues. The issue that you talked about is the fact that we should not be impeding growth in the developing world because the developing world hasn't made it yet. Right. Agreed. That I completely agree with. We should not be doing it. It's paternalistic. Uh, you know, China has made some really bad decisions around the environment in order to facilitate growth of its middle class. And like they're paying the they're paying the price for it right now. But they made that decision. We did too in the U.S. Shitty decisions, bad for the environment. We made that decision. We've had to live with it. But what they're saying is because of that, you know, we shouldn't look at the fact that we are having demographically in the Western world, in the developed world, an aging population that's leading to slow growth, and that we need to start thinking about what are the decisions we've made once you've gotten past the cliff. And how are we managing that? That's a totally different question. And maybe innovation is the answer to that, but maybe it's not. You're not going to innovate your way into more people. No, but you can innovate your way into more housing. So, for example, it seems to me that everyone would agree that we need more housing and more affordable housing, especially in most of our big cities, especially in the most successful cities, right? And the people who sort of seem to say that the most and sort of, you know, are the most sort of on their, their soapbox about it are the same people, though, who, you know, love community boards and environmental reviews and zoning reviews, and they're the same people who end up objecting to anything new that could actually create more affordable housing. So, yeah, I hear your point, Bob, that the, the people that we're talking about maybe are not responsible for impeding the development uh, of people in developing countries, but they are impeding the growth of, of people in this country. And so I think what you're touching on is not necessarily the group itself, and I, by the way, I tend to think that the whole ESG mantra, like you said, is like it's a tribal tattoo in the same way that yeah. other tribes have other tribal tattoos, yeah, right? This is for the, yeah. it's a virtue, it's a tribal tattoo for the 17, you know, for the 17 percentile or whatever you want to say. Right. Sure, that's right. Um, but I think what you're really reacting to is the hypocrisy, which is that group and probably every group will say, yes, I'm in favor of more housing density. I'm in favor of more of the benefits we get, except for on my block. Right. right. Which is like that is that's the constant refrain. It's like everyone says the schools aren't good enough, except my teacher. My teacher's great. Right. Like what people see in their particular is often very different. Yeah. I mean, than what they do in the general. Think about, you know, you you had this fight in Chicago and, and we had it in New York, too, about kind of trying to close failing schools. Now, closing failing schools doesn't necessarily mean padlocking the doors forever. It means throwing out the existing leadership, throwing out the structure and coming up with something different um, that has a better chance of succeeding. Um, the people who tend to oppose that the most, again, are like sort of the 17 percent who whose kids don't go to those schools in the first place. That's um, I mean, that's not the case in Chicago. Certainly in, Chicago, in Chicago, the problem that you had with the closing the failing schools is the failing schools were on 
primarily the South Side because the South Side has just been depopulated radically. And the challenge that you had is you had a lot of parents down there who said, my kids are crossing gang lines to go to this new school. I am now putting my kids at risk. And what you had is a lot of hunger strikes and sit-ins from people in those communities. Like Chicago is obviously very different than New York. And the, like the affluent white community is very different too. The affluent white community is less yeah, progressive and, 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 and does not give a shit right. about the South Side. And we don't have the gang problem in New York nearly as bad. So as a result, that particular issue doesn't really arise. And it's also just a, a more mobile city right. um, in, in general. But... Um, Fundamentally, you know, it feels like people who are saying complaining about the lack of sort of resources for schools or lack of outcomes for schools um, tend to then oppose whether it's charter schools or closing failing schools or you know reforms like last and first ending last and first out or whatever it is. They tend to be the biggest opponents to change, and this is true to me whether it's in education or healthcare or housing or anything else. And so you can complain about the world all you want, but then fucking do something about it. And if you just come up with an excuse for why each particular thing can't work, you're not helping anyone, you're hurting people. Right, and look, this is, a, this is an indictment both of the left and the right, which is at some point you have to get past ideology and move to outcomes. And you have to look at, you have to say, let's look at a series of solutions and let's figure out what the outcomes are going to be. Because if you only go by what do I think is the right ideology, you're going to end up in the wrong place. I mean, the developing world example is the mosquito netting, right? Like everybody talks about that. But giving away mosquito netting for free doesn't work as much as if you require people to pay a little bit because then they value it more and they use it, whereas the free stuff they didn't use. That is not, was not, when that happened, was not an acceptable solution to the progressive left who said this is like throwing and capitalizing everything again. But the reality of human nature was that's what worked. And sometimes, and this is, I think you're right, very much on the like knee-jerk left side, the idea of, well, I'm not going to look at an idea. I'm going to look at defund the police. And I'm going to say from a moral perspective, that's what we need to do. Whereas from a practical perspective, it doesn't work. And sometimes you have to look at the outcomes and say, what is going to work? And throw politics aside for a second and say, let's figure out what the best outcome is. Yeah. And look, over time, it shifts. I think on, on the podcast that, that came out today, you know, we talked about sort of the, the, the pendulum of cities and crime where, you know, cities get really dangerous. Voters all of a sudden become very focused on fighting crime. Cities are safe for a long time. People become more focused on social justice. That weakens the ability to fight crime, gets more dangerous again. I do think a lot of the people who are leading a lot of like no bail, you know, five years from now, if, if New York City, if Chicago, if New Orleans, whatever it is, just continues to get less and less safe at the rate they, they are so far, all of a sudden they might have a different point of view. Right. And it's a it's a weird in Chicago. It's a weird crisis point because we just passed no bail, but crime is terrible. And so people are looking at it right now and looking at the no bail people saying, what are you guys thinking? What are you doing? It's clear that this is not the moment to be doing this, but it's a lingering political hangover from kind of times when crime wasn't so bad. Right. So I think it's going to play out really fast in real time. So, you know, I, I would argue that both Trump voters on the right or sort of the 17% the you know, socialists on the left are basically saying, what are things that will make me feel better about myself, my own life, where I stand in the world, as opposed to what are outcome-based policies that can help me, help my neighbors, help people in other countries, um, whatever it is. How do we get, you know, you're right in the way you talked about it, but how do we get to a world where we're not just governed by sort of id and emotion and we can actually make decisions for the right reasons? 
So I think two parts, two answers to that. I mean, I think first of all, we as individuals have to be self-reflective enough to say, am I doing this because I want to feel good about myself or I want to signal something to my tribe and move to the point of what, let me take a step back. What am I thinking? What am I doing? And what is really the outcome of this? And that's a choice that everybody has to make for themselves every day. If more people start making it, we'll end up at better places. Politically, what do we need to do? I mean, it's a lot of the political form, reforms you talk about that would facilitate, in certain respects, transparency. Because one of the challenges with outcomes generally is people don't trust them because they don't trust the process by which they're measured and accounted for. Mm -hmm. So if you have more transparency, and this is like ESG, everybody hates ESG because they don't know what the hell it means. And I don't know what the hell it means. But if you have transparent policies to say, here's what we're talking about and here are the outcomes, then at least you get to the point where people have to make a decision that has a legitimate, you know, factual undertone to it, and people can have factual discourse. So I, I guess to, to me, transparency is the first step. And in, in a world of, you know, 24 hour news cycles or two hour news cycles and social media and everything else um, that all kind of just engender more and more emotion, you know, can we get to that point? The one thing I will say is 24-hour news cycles are still okay if you can, if you have and can deploy the facts again and again and again. And yeah, it's, you know, you are building up people's emotions, you're building up people's ids, but if you counter the id with the facts again and again and again, people will also get worn down because you can only deny reality for so long. All right, well, that's a great quote to end up. Thanks very much, Bob. Right. Thank Thanks, you. Guys.